Um, so those are our announcements uh, for church stuff. Um, but before we dive into Psalm 15, I just want to pause and take a moment to acknowledge uh, what has happened this week uh, at the Supreme Court. Uh, as you know, the Roe v. Wade decision was overturned in the Supreme Court. And uh, this is a day, uh, a week, a, a, an opportunity to celebrate, not because of politics, not even because of the United States of America, but because there is a righteous God on the throne of heaven. And according to what we've even seen in the Psalms, think Psalm 2, human governments are right or wrong, not based on their relationship with one another, not based on our personal evaluation of them, but based on how they conform to the justice of God. And our God has created every human being in his image with intrinsic dignity, value, and worth from the moment of conception until natural death. The Bible teaches the sanctity of human life, and it teaches a God of justice who protects the innocent, who protects the vulnerable. And so for, uh, for, for this decision to no longer make it uh, federally legal for abortions to take place is a step toward the justice of God. And we should praise God that he would show this nation mercy that he didn't have to show, but he chose to show mercy, to bring justice. Even before that final day of justice, when Jesus returns and every right is made wrong, the fact that we would get to taste his justice like this at all is an amazing act of God that we ought to celebrate and praise God for. We also need to recognize uh, that this is not uh, a finish line in terms of the pursuit of um, the sanctity of life or, or, or things of that nature. Uh, if anything, it's a starting line because all, all of a sudden now, uh, throughout the nation, uh, there are going to be women in very difficult situations who need help. Uh, and, and so I would encourage you uh, to, to not uh, take this uh, occasion and uh, think, okay, I can, I can relax now. But instead to think, okay, because of this, now what do we need to do? Uh, now how would the Lord call me to love neighbor? Uh, so for, for, for you, maybe it's uh, being a part of, of giving to uh, Choices, our, our uh, life resource center uh, that we support here in town that helps women uh, in those situations with physical needs and, and all sorts of things. Uh, maybe uh, you even would pray about fostering or adopting children. Uh, there are all sorts of practical, tangible needs that are, that are only increasing now. And uh, for those of us who, who love the justice of God, uh, we don't just want to be about protecting the innocent and caring for the vulnerable on paper or at the voting booth, or just in terms of the law, we want to act justly, live 
what we believe, show tangibly the love of Christ. And so I would just encourage you to pray about, okay, so what does this mean? What does this mean for me? How can I uh, now act and show the love of Christ in, um, in, in very tangible ways? Well, um, with that, we turn now our attention to the Psalms and to the throne of God, the just one, the righteous king. We are starting a new section of Psalms today with Psalm 15. The last section we were in was Psalms 10 through 14. Uh, So I preached Psalm 13 last week. You might remember a few weeks ago, um, Andrew White preached uh, Psalm 14. That was the end of this section. And uh, Psalms 10 through 14 primarily focused on people who reject Yahweh and how uh, God's anointed and God's people uh, respond to evil around them. Well, Psalms 15 through 24 are primarily focused on God's anointed and his experiences, his character, and the anointed king's relationship with Yahweh. And just briefly, I want to show you why we know that we're supposed to consider 15 through 24 as one unit. Uh, It's because the the arrangers of the Psalms put Psalm 15 and 24 as bookends of these sections. And so just glance quickly at Psalm 15, 1 and 2. David writes, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Now flip ahead to Psalm 24 and verses 3 and 4. See something very similar here. Psalm 24, verse 3, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So we can see in the similarities between Psalm 15 and 24 that these are meant to be taken as bookends of one section, one unit of the Psalms. Well, with that, let's turn our attention now to Psalm 15, and we're going to read this passage together. Um, If you are able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? The Holy Spirit says, a Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell On your holy hill, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. All right, I'm going to see if you can finish this sentence. If you're going to live under my roof, you have to live under my See, I bet you didn't know I'd been talking to your dad. (laughs) Yeah, 
You, I, I, you all have heard that phrase. If you're going to live under my roof, you have to live under my rules. The idea is that if you're going to live in a house owned by me, led by me, if you're going to be in my presence, there is a certain standard that you're going to have to conform to, live by, or else you're not going to be living in my house for very much longer. Well, there's a similar kind of idea happening in Psalm 15 here. Only the house is God's house. The roof is God's roof. Who can live under God's roof? Who is worthy to dwell in God's presence? That's what's in view in Psalm 15. And what we're going to see as we walk through Psalm 15 is that the presence of God is for the righteous. The presence of God is for the righteous. We're going to see this truth in Psalm 15. But we need to understand this truth in light of how it fits into the whole Bible. And so while we are going to walk through Psalm 15 and see this truth in 15, really Psalm 15 is going to send us on a journey. And we're going to make three stops along the way on this journey. Those three stops are going to be in the form of three points. And the first is this. Only the righteous can enter the presence of God. Only the righteous can enter the presence of God. Psalm 15 can be boiled down simply as a question and an answer. You could probably see that just by us reading it together. And that question comes in verse 1. Look with me again at verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Basically, David is asking, what kind of person is worthy to be in your presence? That word tent has the connotation of a, of a home. Uh, we think of tent as something that's just for a, an activity, but uh, a temporary home is in view here with a tent. And specifically, when we talk about Yahweh's tent, we're talking about the tabernacle. Uh, it was the temporary place where God manifested his presence among his people until the permanent temple was built by David's son, Solomon. And so as David asks, who shall sojourn in your tent? He's asking God, who will you let be a guest in your home? David also refers to Yahweh's holy hill. That holy hill is Mount Zion. It's God's throne, the, the place of God's throne. Uh, it refers not only literally to the, the temple mount where David set up the tabernacle where the permanent Ten, uh, the permanent uh, temple would be, but that physical place was just an earthly representation of the true Mount Zion, which is in heaven where God's throne is. Mount Zion was an earthly representation of the heavenly reality, God's throne room. And so as David asks this question, who shall dwell on your holy hill? He's saying, who is worthy to be in your presence? We've seen this term, holy hill, a couple times in Psalms already. Uh, for instance, uh, you can flip back to Psalm 2 and verse 6. Psalm 2 and 
Yahweh says in Psalm 2.6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So not only was Zion, the holy hill, the place where God dwells, it's the place from which God's anointed king, the Christ, the Messiah, the God's anointed king would reign from Zion, the holy hill. And so with that in mind, even as we listen to Psalm 15, what we need to remember and be listening for is, is not just a question of who in general may enter God's tent, who may dwell in God's presence, but even specifically, what kind of king can reign from the holy hill? What kind of king can be a represent, representative of God's people and enter in God's presence? Well, so that's the question in verse 1 of chapter 15. The answer begins in verse 2. What kind of person may dwell in Yahweh's presence? Verse 2, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. So David begins by listing three positive traits of this person who is worthy to enter Yahweh's presence. First, he walks blamelessly. That word blameless has the idea of, of wholeness, wholeheartedness, wholehearted devotion to Yahweh in every area of life. It's an idea of a life where all the, feast, uh, all the pieces fit together and none contradict one another. Uh, the, the worthy one uh, doesn't just say God-honoring words, but then perform actions that are not God-honoring. The worthy one isn't godly with one group of people, but then a different person with another group of people. He is wholehearted. The pieces of his life fit together in his devotion to Yahweh. He walks blamelessly. The second positive trait listed in verse 2 is that he does what is right. Specifically, uh, this has other people in view. He's right toward other people. He treats all people with fairness. He does to others as he would want done to him. He treats others the way he would want to be treated. And then the third positive trait here is that he speaks truth in his heart. So do you see that the first point has to do with his um, walk in terms of his devotion to the Lord. The second has to do with his relationship with others. And then the third is about what he says to himself in his own heart. We've already seen in the Psalms how the fool says foolish things in his heart, like in 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, but the one who is worthy to sojourn in Yahweh's tents is wise. He speaks truth in his heart. He's a Psalm 1 man who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. He speaks the truth in his heart about God. He doesn't believe lies about God. He doesn't believe his own ideas about God. He speaks the truth of God's word to himself and lets that define his idea of who God is. He, he speaks truth in his heart about others. He doesn't let lies about others that might justify his sin toward them seep into his heart. Instead, he, he speaks the truth about what God says about others in his heart. And he speaks the truth in his heart about himself, who God says he is, who God sees him as. 
And what we see in these three positive traits, that he walks blamelessly, does what is right, speaks truth in his heart, is that God is concerned not only with righteous deeds on the outside, but also a righteous heart on the inside. And we'll see this again. We, we already read it in Psalm 24 and, three, and verses 3 and 4, that God is concerned with not just clean hands, but also a pure heart. Well, in verse 2, David gives three positive traits. In verse 3, he tells us three things the worthy one does not do. Look at that verse again. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Uh, so the, the worthy one doesn't slander. He doesn't go around spouting off at the mouth, spreading the latest scandal. He doesn't do evil to his neighbor. This is really the opposite of what we saw in verse 2. He, he, he does what is right. He does not do what is evil. He doesn't treat others in a negative way just to benefit himself. He treats others the way that he would want to be treated. He doesn't take up a reproach. He, he doesn't disparage another person's reputation just to make himself look better. Then in verse 4, and the first part of verse 4, we see that the worthy one has good judgment. Look at the beginning of verse 4. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. The worthy one rightly finds sin distasteful. The one who is worthy to sojourn in Yahweh's tent, dwell on his holy hill, does not celebrate an evil person. On the flip side, he delights in those who delight in the Lord. He delights in those who love Yahweh. We've seen this already in, in Psalm 16 and verse 3, where David writes, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Whether evil or good, the worthy person evaluates people based on how those people evaluate Yahweh. And that's the standard by which the worthy person views others. And then in the last part of verse 4, we see that the worthy one keeps his word, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. So the, the worthy one doesn't make a bold promise just to get his way, but then back out when it's time to put his money where his mouth is. Think about the kid who says, Mom, if you just buy me this dog, I'll, I'll help take care of it every day. But then when it's time to take the dog for a walk, the kid's nowhere to be found. Or think of the politician who makes all sorts of big promises and claims so that you'll elect him. And then when he gets in office, he kind of forgets about all those things that he promises. Well, that's not... The worthy one. The worthy one keeps his word even when it costs him. Even at his own hurt, he keeps his word and does what he says he will do. Again, we'll see this again in Psalm 24. We read it already. That the person who is worthy to ascend the hill of the Lord does not swear deceitfully. Then in verse 5, as we start to come to the end of this list, we see a couple of different ways that the worthy one treats people justly instead of loving money. Look at verse 5. He does not put out his money at interest 
and does not take a bribe against the innocent. So first, he doesn't put out his money at interest. Now, this isn't a a blanket statement about ever um, utilizing interest. It has a specific uh, point in view. It's about not taking advantage of the poor. So we can look back in the Old Testament law and see uh, that he's referring here to a specific instruction that if your neighbor is struggling financially, you shouldn't use that as an opportunity to make money off of him. You shouldn't use his uh, ill fortune uh, to, you know, oh, you know what, I can help you out, give you this money you desperately need, and then I'll charge you interest so I can actually make a profit off of your difficult situation. Uh, that's the command that's in view. And the worthy one does not do that. The worthy one does not take advantage of someone who's in a financial difficulty. Uh, The worthy one is not a payday lender preying on the poor and taking advantage of the weak. Neither does the worthy one favor the rich. We see that again in verse 5. He does not take a bribe against the innocent. Uh, He doesn't favor the guilty uh, and Uh, dismiss the innocent because the guilty gives him money. No, for the worthy one, money doesn't talk. He can't be bought. He values justice and righteousness, not money. Well, then we come to the end of verse 5, and David gives a summary statement about all that we've seen so far in Psalm 15. He says, he who does these things shall never be moved. The one who is the the worthy one described in Psalm 15, the one who loves Yahweh in this way, the one who keeps his law in this way, the one who acts justly toward others in the way he is described, is standing on solid ground. So as we look at Psalm 15 and hear this portrait of righteousness, does Psalm 15 describe you? Are the things that we've listed here in Psalm 15 true of you? Are you devoted to Yahweh, the one true God, with your whole heart? Do you treat all people with fairness? Do you speak only the truth to yourself and your own heart? Do you avoid slandering others? Do you avoid benefiting yourself at others' expense? Do you avoid harming someone else's reputation to make yourself look better? Do you assess other people based on their assessment of God? Do you keep your word and do what you said you would do? Do you avoid taking advantage of other people? Do you avoid being swayed by your own self-interest? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we would say, that's not us. No one can live up to the standard that Psalm 15 has laid out. Not one of us can say that we've always done these things. But that has some really serious implications for Psalm 15. I mean, if no one of us can say we have walked blamelessly, done what was right, spoken truth in our heart, and on and on and on and on, then we cannot say that we shall never be moved. That means that no one of us on our own is worthy to sojourn in Yahweh's tent. 
No one of us on our own is worthy to dwell on God's holy hill. No one is worthy on our own to dwell in the presence of God. On our own, we're just like our grandparents Adam and Eve, who were kicked out of God's presence in the Garden of Eden, where they had once walked with God. God removed them from his presence and even guarded the garden with cherubim at the east entrance of the garden to keep them out. As a a book that we often read to our kids says, because of your sin, you can't come in. And, And it's no accident that when the tabernacle was built, the tent of Psalm 15, that God gave Moses the instructions to model the tabernacle after the Garden of Eden, complete with a veil at the east entrance of the Holy of Holies that has cherubim woven into the curtain. Because of your sin, you can't come in. Removed from the presence of God, the presence of God guarding the entrance to make sure no one who is unworthy would ever enter God's holy presence. So then why did David give us Psalm 15? Just to remind us of how unworthy we are? Not primarily. Primarily, David gave us Psalm 15 to stir our hearts to long for the king who would come who would be worthy to sojourn in Yahweh's tent. To increase our longing for the king who would come who would be worthy to dwell on Yahweh's holy hill. What Psalm 15 reveals to us is that we need a worthy king who can lead us into the tent of Yahweh. And so as we walk in this journey that Psalm 15 sends us on, that leads us to point number two, which is this. Christ the righteous entered God's presence to become the way for the unrighteous to enter. Christ the righteous entered God's presence to become the way for the unrighteous to enter. Only Jesus Christ has ever fully lived up to Psalm 15. Only about Jesus Christ can we truly say he always walked blamelessly. He always did what was right. He always spoke truth in his heart. He never slandered. He never did evil. He never took up a reproach. He rightly despised the vile and rightly honored those who fear Yahweh. He always kept his word. He never mistreated the poor, and he never favored the rich. He alone is worthy to sojourn in Yahweh's tent. He alone is worthy to dwell on Yahweh's holy hill. He is the only one worthy to enter the tent, and he has entered the tent. Not the earthly tent, but as the author of Hebrews describes, he has entered the true heavenly tent, the heavenly reality that the earthly tent was a shadow of. 
but he didn't enter as the only one worthy just to hang out there alone. He entered the true tent to make a way for unworthy people like you and me to be able to enter that tent as well. And the way he did that was through his own blood. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. The tabernacle as the place where God manifested his presence was also a place of atonement for sin. It's a place that the high priest entered once a year to make atonement, to bring the blood of the sacrifice, to sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Well, we see this in Hebrews chapter 9. Look at verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus entered the tent not only to dwell there himself, but he offered his own life as a sacrifice to atone for our unworthiness. He offered himself as a worthy substitute for unworthy people like you and me. And when he entered the tent, he went in to atone for our unworthiness, to pay for all the ways we violated Psalm 15, and to cleanse us of our unworthiness, to wash us white, and make us worthy to enter. And that leads to point number three. Those who trust in Christ can now enter the presence of God and share in his righteousness. Because of what Christ has done, those who trust Christ can now enter the presence of God and share in his righteousness. Only the righteous can enter the presence of God. And only Christ is righteous. But because he entered with a sacrifice to make the unrighteous righteous, to make the unworthy worthy, if we trust in him, we can now enter the presence of God and share in his righteousness. If you're in Hebrews 9, look ahead to Hebrews 10 and verse 19. Therefore, brothers, 
since we have confidence to enter the holy places or sojourn in Yahweh's tents or dwell on Yahweh's holy hill, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Because Jesus entered the tent for us, he has made a way for us to enter the tent of God. If you trust in Jesus, if you trust in his blood to pay for your sins, you can sojourn in Yahweh's tent. You can dwell on Yahweh's holy hill. Not because you made yourself worthy. Not because you lived up to Psalm 15. But because Christ makes worthy all who trust in him. John describes this in Revelation 14. You don't have to turn there, but listen to what John says in Revelation 14, starting in verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And he says later in verse 4, these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. We can be counted blameless. We can be numbered among the blameless. We can dwell on Mount Zion because of the Lamb who has redeemed us by his blood. And did you know that that was true for David, too? Again, going back to Psalm 15 and thinking about David and his writing, his situation, uh, this was all the same for David as well. While David longed for the Messiah and, and, and Christ had not yet been born, even in his own day, David experienced the grace of Christ to make him blameless and lead him in walking blamelessly. He tells us in the Psalms, for instance, uh, we'll see in Psalm 18, verse 32, the God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. In Psalm 21, 7, we'll see him say this, for the king trusts in the Lord and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. And then in Psalm 23, 3, a very familiar verse, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He leads me in these paths. The way of righteousness has only ever been by the generous grace of God. Favor that we do not deserve. Favor that we are not worthy of. And so if we are in Christ, if we have repented and trusted in Jesus, we can say like David in Psalm 23, 6, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, 
and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But it gets even better than that. Because not only has Jesus made a way for us to enter into the tent, not only has he made a way for us to be cleansed and counted worthy, but because of Jesus, we can now walk in the blameless, wholehearted, righteous life that he walked in. Uh, So if you're still in Hebrews 10, keep reading Hebrews 10, verses 23 to 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And did you catch back in Hebrews 9:14 that Jesus purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So here's the amazing thing. In Christ, we don't have to do righteous deeds to make ourselves worthy to enter God's presence. Instead, in Christ, Jesus makes us worthy to enter God's presence so that we can do righteous deeds. Jesus has made us worthy and called us into his father's tent. And now he calls us to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. So if you have been made worthy to enter, you and I get the privilege of living in the good of what Christ has purchased for us. We get to live in the good of having been made worthy. So if you have been made worthy, are you doing Good works and stirring up others to do the same? In Christ, that is no longer a crushing question. It's an invigorating question. Because of Christ's work, we can do good works and stir up others to do the same without the burden of having to make ourselves worthy to enter God's presence, but instead out of the overflow of having already been made worthy. And so, again, consider Psalm 15. If you've been made worthy by Christ, is there an area of your life that's not yet wholly devoted to God? Are there inconsistencies between who Christ has made you by his grace, by his blood? Is is there an inconsistency between that and the way that you're living? Uh, Do you treat people fairly? Do you avoid taking advantage of others? And favor those who can benefit you? Uh, Do you speak truth in your heart? Or are there some lies that you've been allowing your heart to believe that you need to put to death? Uh, Do your words and actions toward others reflect a heart that has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus? Again, in Christ, these are no longer soul-crushing questions. These are questions about what Christ has made possible. In Christ... We will never be moved, not because of our own performance, not because of our own worthiness, but because of Christ's worthiness. We can say with David, we will never be moved because the Lord is before me. I have set him before me, and because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. In Christ, we'll never be moved. So may we live like it. 
May we live like those who have been made worthy by the blood of Jesus. May we live like it because in Christ we can, by his grace, by his strength, by his love, because he has made us worthy. So as you think about Psalm 15, I hope that you'll think of a father. But not one who says, if you're going to live under my roof, you have to live under my rules. I want you to think of a father, but a different father. A father who looks at a poor orphan and says, you are going to come live under my roof. A father who says, you don't have to do anything to earn this. I'm going to adopt you into my family and bring you into my house. Under my roof, we stay clean, so I'm going to wash you. Under my roof, we dress a certain way, so I'm going to take your filthy rags and replace them with the nicest clothes I can find. Under my roof, we act a certain way, so I'm going to help you, and I'm going to teach you to live like part of the family. You don't have to make yourself worthy. I made you worthy the day that I adopted you as my own. You will come and live under my roof so I can teach you how to live just like me. That's our father. That is the father who sent his son to make a way to bring us home. The presence of God is for the righteous. And so the righteous died to make the unrighteous righteous. The worthy one died to make the unworthy worthy. And now our father welcomes us into his tent by the blood of his son. Now our father will dwell with us on his holy hill for all of eternity. Let's pray together. Father, as we think of Psalm 15, the one who is worthy to sojourn in your tent, the one who is worthy to dwell on your holy hill, we confess that there is only one who matches that description. There is only one who is worthy and he entered with his own blood to make a way for unworthy people to be made worthy, to make a way for unrighteous people to be made righteous, to be cleansed, to become worthy, to enter your presence. Lord, even now as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, I pray that this meal would be sweeter today as we remember what Christ did to make a way for us to enter your presence. Lord, I pray that if we have been counted worthy by the blood of Jesus, Lord, we would live in the good of what Christ purchased for us. We would live out that which he is working in, that we would live out his blamelessness, his righteousness, his truth as we depend on your grace to live 
the same grace that purchased our righteousness. Lord, we love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.